Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. We'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is one of those great passages in the scripture. This is one of those wonderful passages that uh, expands upon God's promise to the Jewish people. In this passage, we have what's referred to as the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David. And uh, so when you think of the, if we were to take a panoramic view of the uh, scripture, we find that God calls Abraham initially, right? He calls him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and he establishes a relationship with Abraham and he establishes an unconditional covenant. That is, God binds himself to do certain things for Abraham And Abraham does not have to do anything in order to benefit from those blessings. He's just given them. They're referred to as um, unrequired promises of God. They're unconditional promises made to God, made by God to Abraham. And to Abraham, there are three basic promises that are made. They are found throughout the book of Genesis but principally Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 12, and there are three of them. The first thing he tells them is that, number one, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So he promises out of Abraham there's going to come a nation of people. That nation of people are the Jewish people, the chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob. So he makes the promise, number one, I'm going to multiply your seed. And make of you a great nation. The second thing he tells him is, I'm going to give you a land. There's a certain land in the land in the Middle East. We can't go into all the dimensions and all the geographical distinctions. But he says, in addition to this people I'm going to create, you will be the father of many nations. I'm also going to give you a great land. And then he tells him, thirdly, I'm also going to pour out great blessing upon you. So he has land, descendants, and blessing. Those are the three key promises made to Abraham that are unconditional. You always have to hold on to them. Because the whole entire Hebrew Scriptures revolves around those three promises. Land, descendant, and blessing. Now because these three promises are so important to God as well as to the one God promises them to, Each one of those promises, God then establishes a unique 
covenant around. So he promises Abraham. Think of these promises to Abraham like an umbrella. And under the umbrella, you have these three promises. Land, descendants, blessing. And if you think of each one of these promises, God then establishes a covenant whereby he reinforces, I'm going to bring this about. So he has the promise of land. And we have the land covenant, a unique covenant, found within the context of the Mosaic law around Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in chapter 30, he says, what I promised to Abraham, I'm going to fulfill and I'm going to help you uh, cast out the nations that are currently in that land. This land is yours. And then he tells them, to the degree to which you are faithful, you will stay in the land and reap the bounties of the land. However, if you are disobedient, you will be cast off of the land and you will not experience the blessings of the land. The land will always be your land. You'll always possess it. But you may not always be living in it and benefiting from it. The land is never given to anyone else. But the Jewish people are told that if they lack faith, if they fail to exhibit their faith by obeying, they'll be cast off the land and will not reap the benefits of the land. Does that make sense? Now, in that promise, we see it happen in Scripture. Remember during the time of Elijah, for the three years it didn't rain. Why? Because there was mass idolatry in the land. You remember Elijah fought the 400 Baal prophets. And you remember he had fire come down and consume his offering on the altar to demonstrate his God was the true God. Because there was such widespread idolatry, that's an act of disobedience, not worshiping the true God. God had it not rained for three years and thus there was a terrible famine in the land. That's what God said would happen. Judgment will strike. And if the uh, insubordination persists, I will cast you out of the land. And so the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians around 720. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile by the Babylonians around 600. And then while Israel was allowed to return, they never could return as an autonomous body, but only under the authority of a foreign nation, be it the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Arabs or, in more modern times, the British up until 1948. So Israel was never possessed by any other nation. It always belonged to the Jewish people. Other nations may have resided on the land, lived on the land, cast the Jewish people out of the land, But the land never becomes theirs. It's only given to Israel. God promised Abraham three promises. Unconditionally. I'm giving you a land. I'm going to multiply your descendants. And I'm going to bless you. The land gets a unique promise later in Israel's history. In Deuteronomy 30. In which God says this land is yours. I'm going to help dispel the nations that are there. Follow me and you will receive the blessings and the benefit of being in the land. The additional covenant is meant to reinforce God's promise of the land. Everybody's with me. When we come over here, I talked about the, the blessing, right? God said, I will bless you to Abraham. So later, God is going to reinforce his promise to bless Israel, uh, Abraham and his descendants. So he establishes a covenant to reinforce it. 
It's what you and I understand to be the new covenant. The new covenant reiterated by, or I should say, established by or proclaimed by Jeremiah in chapter 31 and repeated in the book of Hebrews is building on the Abrahamic promise of blessing. And that new covenant promises the greatest blessing, which would be the Spirit of God would be given to those who follow the Lord and are faithful to him. And that faithfulness is seen in following Messiah. And the Spirit of God then would indwell those people, not merely be with them, but would be in them. You remember what Yeshua said in the Upper Room Discourse at Passover? I will send you the Spirit who is with you, but will be in you. Future tense. So while the Spirit of God was always with Israel, he wasn't always in Israel. But after Messiah came, he said something new will happen. The Spirit of God will not only dwell among you, he will dwell within you. And that is in response to the new covenant, which provides this great blessing of the Spirit's presence within the the body of the people. That's why in Jeremiah, it says, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. That's why it says in Jeremiah, the law will now be written on their hearts and not merely on tablets of stone. The point is God promised Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. When he promised him land, He reiterated that promise with a unique land covenant found in Deuteronomy. When he reiterated the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic promise, he established a unique covenant, reinforcing it, called the new covenant in Jeremiah. That new covenant, all believers today begin to experience some of the ramifications of. That's why Yeshua said at Passover, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the remission of sins. When Messiah came, the new covenant was inaugurated to some degree. It'll have a fuller impact when Messiah returns. But for now, we're beginning to reap the benefits of that promise. Our second promise to Abraham, but we're going at it third, land, blessing, descendants. And so he promises that he will multiply his descendants. You can count the number of stars in heaven or the sand on the seashore. But what we learn is that while God promises to, de- to multiply the descendants of Abraham, he focuses his attention on a particular descendant of Abraham. And that particular descendant would be Israel's Messiah who will come out of Israel, who will bring salvation not only to Israel but to the ends of the earth. That's why in Romans 1.16 it says, For the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. The Messiah must come out of the Jewish world. He must come out of the Jewish lineage. He must come out of Abraham. Because that's what God promised Abraham. Genesis 12. And he reiterates that promise. In 2 Samuel 7. That's why 2 Samuel is so important. It's referred to as the Davidic covenant. Because it is David and the seed of David. That is focused upon as the descendant. God promises to Abraham that we're to keep our eyes open for. Everybody with me? Promise of land, Deuteronomy 30. Promise of blessing, Jeremiah 31. Promise of a descendant is 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is where we are at. And what I find so wonderful about this promise is the context in which the promise is made. So let me just share this with you very quickly. Look at chapter 7, 2 Samuel. We're exploring the life of David. 
And we found that the principal characteristic of David is that he has a heart after God. Remember, that's what Samuel said to Saul. God is going to choose a man that has a heart like God's. And later, we find that Paul, when he uh, surveys Israel's history, he draws attention to David as a man after God's own heart. We read in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 78, where it says that David led Israel, shepherded Israel with all of his heart as a heart that is after God. And we find another reference to the heart of David here as well. Now notice what happens. It says, now when the king lived in his house, in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. Isn't that wonderful? By the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, after all of his runnings, he ran from Saul from when he was 17 to when he was 30. He was anointed second time as king in Hebron when he was 30, and he reigned in Hebron another seven and a half years. He's like 37, and he's finally anointed king over all Israel, Israel and Judah, by the time he's around 40. And he'll reign as the king over the United Kingdom of Israel for 30 years. He'll die when he's around 72 or so. So here we are now at the beginning of his reign over all of Israel. No more civil strife with the household of Saul. No more conflicts within his own home guard that we read about in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. Now it says that he finally has a period of rest, a period of peace. There's peace in his home. There's peace within his kingdom. There's peace with respect to his enemies. When there is peace, now you can start to think, right? When there is no peace, you're dealing with how do we deal with this matter? How do I re react to it? How do we respond? How do we move forward? How do I correct this? How do I expand on this? But when there's peace, when there's rest, now your mind can sort of just muse and reflect and to think about what would I like to do? You know, that comes for you and I when we retire. <laughs> you know? Rarely do we experience this before finally we're retired, we got our 401ks, our house is paid off. You know, that is if we are even at this point, right? And all of this stuff, and now maybe I'll tour the world, you know. We may be too old to tour the world, you know, we can't even get up in the morning, let alone get on a tour bus. But now we're thinking, you know, maybe now I can explore what I've always wanted to explore, visit that country I've never visited, write that book, you know, record that music, whatever it is. Up until that moment of rest, you're just on edge and you're responding to things, reacting, rather than being proactive and planning. But David in 2 Samuel is at a point of peace. So now he can think. When he thinks, it's interesting what he thinks about because it reveals his heart for God. What does he think about? He thinks about the fact he's got such great blessings. I have a palace. I have a kingdom. I have peace in my kingdom. But the Lord, in, with respect to his localized presence over Israel by means of the Shekinah glory, is hovering over an ark in a tent. 
in a tabernacle that has skins of various animals covering it. His thought goes to God. His thought is not about how much money do I have. His thought is not about where I could travel. His thought is not about, although he's a musician, what more music is he going to write. His thought is about God. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. And he thinks about God in comparison to himself. And he's thinking, I have it better than God does. Because God's presence is now in a tent. And I have this beautiful palace. So in this moment of peace, he thinks, I'm going to build a beautiful home, a beautiful temple for God. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, we are introduced to the first time Nathan the prophet. Nathan, we don't know where he's been or what role he has played, but here's the first time he shows up in Scripture. And he speaks to Nathan. Nathan is like his confidant. Nathan is his prophet. Nathan is his supreme counselor. So he says to Nathan in verse uh, verse 2, Nathan said to the, uh, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I think that's really neat, you know? Not just what's on your mind, but what's in your heart, what you cherish, what's important to you, what's significant. And what's significant to David is God. And what I also find interesting is what happens, what, how Nathan responds Nathan's a good man. He's a prophet of Israel. And so he says to David, do that's all in your heart. It's a great idea. The Lord is with you. But then if you look at verse 4, that evening when Nathan goes to sleep, the Lord speaks to Nathan and says, verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So Nathan is told, and if you look at the passage in First Chronicles, It's very clear. God says to Nathan, tell David, you shall not build for me a house. So this is really quite interesting. A prophet got it wrong. A prophet was not speaking the word of God. He was speaking contrary to God. He meant good. He didn't do anything wrong. He wanted to encourage David. And David didn't do anything wrong. He only wants to build a house for God. But God says, no. Nathan said, yes. Don't you think that's kind of neat? You know, uh, the humanness here that Nathan reveals. We always think of the prophets whenever they speak, whenever they serve, as always doing it right. Always speaking God's will. But Nathan did not speak God's will here. I think there's something we need to be cautioned about. People oftentimes come up to us and say, God told me to tell you. You need to understand, oftentimes they get it wrong. Like Nathan got it wrong here. Ultimately, we're responsible for our own choices. 
We can listen to other people. We can take into advice what other people say. We should certainly pray about what other people say. But we should not take what other people say as a blanket slate statement from God. No matter how much they say, God told me, told me, told me. The only ultimate objective voice from God we have is the Word of God. It's the Bible. That's what we need to prioritize and follow. Not to say there aren't prophets among us, but prophets are human beings like Nathan. They get it wrong sometimes. And when they get it wrong, what I like about Nathan is he hears from God, he goes to David. That could not have been an easy thing. It couldn't be easy. After Nathan said, hey, the Lord be with you. God is going to bless you. This is awesome to go back and say, you know what? I was wrong. God told me to tell you, you're not the one to build the house. So it took courage on Nathan's part. Remember, Nathan later is going to have to go to David a second time to scold him, to tell him he's guilty of murder, to tell him he's guilty of adultery. And Nathan was really to the king. He's the most powerful man here, and I've got to call him out. That'll be the second time we'll get to it. I think it's around chapter 11. But right now, it's the first time. You have to give Nathan uh, credit for bringing the voice of God corrected to, um, to David. And you know what's also neat? David's response. Because David doesn't complain about it. David doesn't say, whoa, 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 what, what do you mean I'm not going to build this house? I want to build this house. No, he accepts this. You'll see this in uh, verse 18. Look what David does. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. So did he sit on his throne? Did he sit on a chair? Did he sit on the ground? He comes before God and he sits before him. And this is what he says. He says, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He speaks of the great blessings God has given him. Why have you blessed me so much? Now, David's life was on the run for 17 years. You know, it's not as if everything's been going well for him. But when he puts it all in perspective, he says, God, you have been wonderful to me. Others may not have been so wonderful, but you have been wonderful to me. And he says, and yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have, like, uh, I'm a small thing. And my concerns are a small thing, but you have made it a priority to bless me. And so he says, you have spoken also of your servant's house. For a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all the greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, uh, before, uh, and before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. David is in complaint. He's not upset. Rather, he looks at this and he says, 
Lord, you are a great God, and you have done so much for me. What a great lesson for all of us when God says no. Our response should be, could be, we've got to work at it, I get that. But like David's is to come sit before the Lord and say, but Lord, you know what? In the greater scheme of things, this is a small matter for sure. And you have blessed me abundantly. And there are great blessings to come. This is only this side of heaven. We still have a whole eternity yet to experience with him. And so David has it all really right in perspective. And you know what's neat? It's not just words for David. Because the next thing he does, he sends out his men to gather all the supplies, all that is needed for the, for the temple to be rebuilt. God told him it will be your son who will rebuild it. And does, how does David think about that? He says, let me do whatever I can to provide the resources for my son to do your bidding. And so not only does David give praise to God after a no, but he then gets to work on helping God make the yes for Solomon. I think this is really wonderful insight into what it means to be a person after God's own heart. It's seeking God, it's seeking others, and it's being grateful for what we have received. Now, in the midst of all of that, and I come back to this, if you look at, um, if you look at chapter 7, I turned over, but in chapter 7, and you come back, after God said, uh, David said, I want to build you a house, this is what God says to him. Tell, this is what God tells Nathan to tell David. He says to him, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Isn't that, you know, and how true that is. Every, every society knows David, right? And he's key, Christians, Muslims, Jews. I mean, God has really made his name great. By the way, in all the Bible, David is the only one that bears that name. You would think a lot of people would name their children after David, but in the scripture, it's almost like it's reserved for him. And the only one named in association with him is the Messiah, as the son of of David. And that's because David, and we'll see this in a few chapters, is a great prefiguration of the Messiah in so many ways. But now look at what he says here. He says, while you wanted to make a house for me, this is what he says, I will make for you a great name, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, this is so wonderful, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. We don't have time to make the comparison here with the restatement in Chronicles. But here he's talking about Solomon. But in the Chronicles passage, he's talking about the Messiah. And while David said, I want to build a house for you, and David had the idea of a physical temple, 
God says to David, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. And the epitome of that dynasty is going to be the Messiah of Israel who will be your descendant. And through him, all the promises made to Abraham of land, descendant, and blessing will come to fruition. And so like David, when no's come, sometimes it's because God has something greater in store. Sometimes there's a redirection of a route to get us where God wants us to get to. And the reason for it is because there is great blessing to be received from him. On the surface, it may appear like all hope is lost. But behind the scenes, God has a plan at work. He did for David, and he does for you and I. So let's pray. Our God and Father, and the worship team can come on up. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We're grateful, Father, for your compassionate words to David through Nathan. That despite the fact that he could not build what, you, what he desired to build for you, Lord, you promised to build for him something that is of an eternal nature. For from his descendants would come forth the Messiah of Israel. And that one we place our faith and trust in this day. And our prayer, Lord, is that even as David experienced a no that led to a great yes, may we see in our own lives that the no's are en route to a great yes you have for us too. So we bless you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray that your spirit would reside in our lives, that we would be yielded to him, and that we would follow him. We would again lift up to you Pastor Brunson and pray for his release. And we lift up to you your people Israel. We thank you for Nikki Halley and the present administration for its support of Israel and your people. May you bless our nation as a consequence. May you enable us, Lord, to see Israel experience the peace that she craves. And Lord, that peace comes only when the Prince of Peace takes up residence in our lives, in our hearts, in our communities, in our nation, in our families, and in our world. May we seek you, like David, in those quiet moments. May we sit before you, reflect on you, and seek out what your will is and not what our will might be. So we bless you, our Father, and we praise your name, and we thank you for this day. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.